Welcome to the Mindful Runner Podcast, a show about running and racing, trail and ultra in South Africa. Along the way, we'll be talking training, gear, nutrition, and mindfulness, all in the context of the South African racing scene. I'm your host, Fred Richardson, founder and head coach at Mindful Runner. Stay tuned as I do my best to give you all the information and none of the waffle. The Drakensberg Grand Traverse record had stood for almost 10 years when Stan Larnen and Andrew Hagen took it on and finally managed to break Laurie and Gavin Robenheimer's record. The new record was set at 3 days, 9 hours and 52 minutes. But the most important thing was that Stain would go on to become the unofficial record keeper for the DGT. Stain shares with us his wealth of knowledge on the route and how best to approach running a good time on the DGT. Once you guys had set the new record, you've now effectively broken Gavin's record, you're the new record holders, you then somehow become the custodian of the records. How did that happen? You're basically the historian for the FKT. Yeah, so I suppose it's it's mostly to do with the fact that I'm quite into stats and numbers and record keeping myself. Um, what pretty much happened is there's a, a Drakensberg forum online called Vertical Endeavor where uh, some of the members put together a, a thread or a, a, a database where they wanted to just keep track of various Drakensberg FKTs. Um, and obviously one of the main ones that people were aware of at the time was the, um, the DGT. This would have happened when there were only maybe four or five successful attempts at the um, at the FKT up to that point. So I kind of just did a little bit of research to get the initial times up on the list, kept an eye on whenever people were going. And I suppose as, as soon as that started building up, whenever, whenever there is a team that is um, making an attempt, uh, somebody kind of gets hold of me and lets me know what's happening. And generally I'm quite in, quite keen on following along, doing a bit of dot watching. And then it's nice to have that list maintained good to see who's managed to successfully complete it and um, sort of where where you stack up based on based on how your attempt has gone. You guys started quite late in the morning. Why did you start so late? I don't know whether it was Andrew's idea or mine, but we we had a bit of a brainwave. So we were always approaching it with a, a hiking mindset. We were not planning on moving at night at all or as, as little as possible. We were planning on using the the nights for full recovery. So, so sleep a sleep a good six, seven hours, which means that the time that you're you're gaining distance is, is daylight hours only. So every time a night ticks over in terms of what your final time ends up being. Back then, so the, the Rover numbers record was four and a half days, four days, nine hours and change. If you start early, which I had done in my previous attempt, where we started at four in the morning, every time you hit four in the morning, you're now moving from three days plus so many hours to four days plus so many hours, etc. So we just thought if we if we leave at nine and manage to cover a decent chunk of distance before the first night, then you still have that, um, what is it, five hours of daylight on your last day that you're finishing to still finish sub four days, sub five days, whatever it was going to be. And that, that was the main reason. So it was kind of really odd. We were sitting there at the Sentinel car park it was getting pretty hot already and normally you'd set off at four and there we are whiling away the time set off at 9am only and do you think it worked 
I'm trying to think. We finished on the evening of the fourth day, which, yeah, so essentially what it, what it did is if we had started earlier, we ended up maximizing the daylight hours on that last day. So we on that last day, we we camped somewhere just south of Tabanantlinana, um, had another just shy of 60 Ks to do, started at three in the morning and literally finished at the Bushman's Neck border post at, I think it was like 10 to 7 or something like that. Whereas had we started earlier, we would have perhaps, you know, not not been able to use the, the daylight hours as well. We would have wasted those. We would have finished maybe mid-afternoon and and hence those last few daylight hours would have been dark hours at another time of the while we're out there. Yeah, I think it worked pretty well. But it it kind of, I think it only really works if you've got that approach, if you're if you're not planning on taking a uh, adventure racing or running approach to it where you are actually planning on moving at night then i think your starting time more needs to based be based on where you want to be during those daylight hours and during the hours of darkness because there's particular sections of the route where if you can plan it that you're on one of the sections with at least a, a good sort of sheep trail to follow or something it's nice to have those in the dark because then your your speed gets less affected. So I think there's a, especially with the, the faster attempts these days, the guys spend a lot of time thinking about what what time do they want to start to make sure that, for example, they're in the Makotlong Valley section overnight where they can still keep up a decent pace even though it's... So that's the section between Mafadi and, and Giants. Yeah, that's where you want that's, to be. That's one of the sections. That's, yeah. And then I think also um, after Giants. As you as you kind of head southwest again off the giants, you you go quite far inland to approach Tamanantlianana. There's about a 15, 20 kilometer section there where you're following those typical parallel paths that uh, the herders and their and their livestock and everything create up on the escarpment. And I mean, even if it's dark, so that's also typically where there's a lot of population and a lot of herders and hence a lot of dog. Yeah, so that is. Um, another thing to take into account. Doing those sections in the dark, you're kind of a little bit more at risk of having some nasty encounters with dogs guarding their crawls or guarding their um, their livestock. And that is the biggest risk. It's uh, on the whole route, because you're on the escarpment, the chances of falling off something are pretty slim. You could twist an ankle, break a leg maybe, but that you could do that on any trail, right? So the biggest risk really is whether and dogs yeah i'd say the the um the weather part of it comes in based on how much you're willing to take with you so the whole the whole approach to the traverse is completely affected by how heavy your bag is that affects by how much you can run versus how much hiking you end up having to do and that decision that all the people that have attempted the route so far have had to make is you know do i take a tent do i take an extra warm layer or something, or do I dispense with those things um, and then have to be able to get myself off the mountain if if the weather's bad? Whereas no matter what your approach is, the, the dogs are always going to be there. So, I mean, when we went, we, like I said, we, we didn't really move at night that much, so it was less of an issue for us. But I think um, like Andrew Porter, when he was doing his solo traverses, that, those, that was his biggest fear, uh, in, encountering a dog or a pack of dogs um, at night by himself. It sounds pretty terrifying, <laughs> to be honest. In the context of the of the race, strategically, how are you going to approach this race? You're getting the GPS track, and I'm assuming you're getting the GPS track that, that Reino and Ryan ran. 
as being the most efficient. So what would your approach be? I mean, where do you go fast? Where do you go slow? So first of all, just talking about the route, I think the GPS track that's being shared now and that I imagine will be shared with uh, the races, as far as I understand it with the race, your only checkpoints are the same checkpoints as what have been used on the FKT so far. So the six summits um, and and the passes, the Tomato Pass at the end, essentially. So there's possibly a little bit of scope still for if, if people really want to put in their research, do some scouting trips, like what Andrew spent a lot of time doing is is actually really finding some sneaks, uh, refining the route. Um, and it's not always it's not always trying to reduce distance. It's often taken taking your fatigue into account. And even if there's a section that's a bit longer, but it's got uh, a bit of path that makes the going a bit easier for a bit longer, Andrew would make sure he'd he'd join up with that path or that early on there were even sections where he was opting for the route with more vert. He'd rather go over summits because that was his strength and he knew he's he's pretty strong on the on the power hiking climbs and everything, rather than trying to stick to a path that was running um, a, a longer valley around. Kind of taking your own strengths into account. I think one of the one of the things about the traverse that a lot of people underestimate is that unless you are carrying really, really light. So uh, for example, the approach that um, Rayner and Ryan followed, where they backed themselves to be able to move quickly, um, and hence th- they were going for a sub 48-hour time and knew they would only have to spend one night out there and were intending to be moving the entire time, not have to stop for a nap or a sleep or anything, which means you you take that aggressive approach, you pack accordingly, you've got very little with you, which means you can you can stick to those times, you can run faster. But it also means that if anything doesn't go according to plan, if you're slower than expected, you need a bail because you don't have to get it to, to keep you up there. You can't slog it out anymore. You can't spend extra nights up there. So there's almost a decision you have to take up front is what, what approach are you going for? Are you, are you wanting to move as fast as possible, but hence have a much higher probability of having to bail and not being able to finish the race? Or do you want to make sure you can stick it up regardless, even if you don't hit your planned time targets and everything? In which case you need to have um, some some extra kit, some extra food and everything with you, which then obviously automatically slows you down more, makes it more difficult to do any running. And I think the the element of it that people often underestimate is that even the guys who have done their 60-hour times, essentially all the fastest times after Rayner, Ryan and Andrew, that cluster of times that Rayner and Corbis um, and also Andrew set around 60 hours, those those attempts have very little running on them. Maybe a little bit of shuffle on a on a path going downhill. It's just it's a long way. The terrain is quite rough. Uh, lots of off trail stuff. To have the energy to keep a running effort going for long stretches is is very very tough. Um, and I think I think for almost everybody, all aiming to win and get close to the the fastest times that have been set, the approach for this thing should be a mentality of this is going to be. It's like an adventure racing approach of relentless forward progress. You always just, you're, you're making sure you keep moving. There's probably a lot of slog involved. You've got to be willing to accept that because that's that's pretty much what it's about. What's your, what's your guess on what the fastest time could be out of this race? Obviously, compared to the FKTs, there's, there's a, a little bit of support added in that you've got the aid station at Sani. So runners could use that to take an even more aggressive approach. So perhaps 
people who have the same sort of running ability um, as those guys who have set times in the in the 40 hours and experience with that sort of distance could could go a bit faster could it take a few hours off i'd be very surprised if it went more than a few hours faster than the current current fastest time obviously it completely depends on on who toes the line um and with a thing like this the the bigger element is your your experience with not necessarily drakensberg specific experience that that obviously helps but experience with having to keep moving for that sort of period of time over 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 rough terrain that doesn't allow comfortable running where you're actually mostly power hiking um with a with a bit of a run or a jog where where you can squeeze it in so people who have that kind of experience will be well suited to be able to take on the, the really fast times so you reckon 40 hours is about the best we'd see take for example if if like ryan and reno were to rock up again then they i'd certainly expect them to be able to go a few hours faster than their own time given their experience given that they know what's expected given that they can gun for that sony aid station it's only something like 50ks to the finish from there so strategically maybe it doesn't help that much but i think you can lighten your load a little bit and taking that into account and even then even if you've got that team or people with similar experience there's also a lot of lack involved you need your your weather conditions need to line up well i know when they did their record it was actually quite hot so perhaps with cooler conditions this race is happening in november beginning of november so it could i mean you could have some hot days still potentially some storms get hit by a storm up there and enough we've seen it in, in recent attempts as well it tends to derail the plans for at least four or five hours while people hunker down and you know, take a bit of a nap or something because typically the kind of kit you're carrying with you on these attempts you there's no way you you're still moving in a, in a full-on escarpment thunderstorm you know bit of all the experience and um and uh ability required and then also a bit of a bit of luck needs to play ball as well so i was reading andrew's report when you guys did it and just a, an example of micro navigation is when you were descending tabantleniana you hit that big marshy patch that is often iced over and just literally 50 meters to the left is trail yep. that's hard and rocky and easy to move on. And the difference between the two in terms of movement time isn't massively significant, but you'll gain five or 10 minutes on that bit of rock versus banging through the marsh. And that's just one section. And there's so many pieces throughout this route that are like that, that, if you just you can be off by 100 meters mm. and it's heavy going yeah. versus being on the goat track it's actually another another point about um, using the purely relying on the gps track and not actually having any any scouting experience of your own um of i mean i've experienced that races like skyrun and that kind of thing where you can be following a gps track on your watch um and you can still be off by it, it doesn't have to be more than 20 meters on your watch or whatever it looks like you're pretty much bang on the line but you might be running parallel to the the road or the jeep track or the path that you're looking for and in the dark that's not obvious at all having the jeep track as well as an expectation of what's what what terrain are you supposed to be on right now is it is it right or are you definitely a bit off and you should spend a couple of minutes finding the the efficient line i think that sort of thing makes a big difference and and like you said it 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 certainly accumulates over 200 kilometers of that terrain. Cut a, a corner here, contour around, hit a saddle versus climbing over the ridge to get into the same saddle. All these little bits and pieces that can add up. 
So local knowledge is going to be king on this one if you want to really do well. I, I think certainly it'll, it'll help a lot. Yeah, um, and it's it's what you've seen a lot of the a lot of the fast times on the FKT leaderboard. Those guys have almost all of them have at least put in some rickies. And I mean, obviously, the more recent attempts have had the benefit of uh, a GPS track that already exists, which makes it a bit more accessible. You're going to struggle to hit your own personal sort of optimal time by relying on GPS track alone. And also insisting on being on the trail. I mean, there's so many sections where there is wide trail and somebody will be running on their GPS track three or four meters to the one side and it's kind of a little nonsensical. So I think you need to use the GPS for the macro view and then navigate on a micro scale by eye. Yeah. And I think that also um, it's something that's probably quite... uh, it takes up a lot of mental energy. You've got to be constantly evaluating. There's no obviously there's no markers to follow any of that. You're constantly evaluating. Am I on the efficient line? And if you've been there before, if you've at least scouted big sections of the route, it becomes a lot easier to to be comfortable that you're you're on the right line. Whereas if this is your first time up there, um, it's I think going to take quite a toll. Just constantly doubting yourself and wondering. Probably I don't know, seventy percent of the route is off trail. And then, yes, you're off-trail, but there's sections of off-trail that are easier going than others, which obviously also vary by season. So you mentioned some of the marsh in the summer season. So um, November's probably okay because you haven't really hit the rainy season yet. But there's there's times when there's entire escarpment valleys that are quite boggy. And then you'd actually want to alter the the route. You'd want to deviate off the GPS line to to perhaps maintain a higher altitude around around a valley or something like that to actually save yourself some time. So you've mentioned it uh, sort of offhand, thunderstorms, mm. quite likely in November, yeah? Uh, I think it's starting to go into thunderstorm season. I think November's pretty stable in my experience. You can still get storms, but I think they only really start kicking in December, January, February. Those are the, the big sort of uh, thunderstorm months, but not unheard of. Um, and yeah, like I said, if, if, if a thunderstorm hits, given that the escarpment is is as exposed as it is you you're typically looking for whatever shelter you can find quite quickly and then setting those out yeah and sometimes that shelter doesn't exist other than descending into a valley which means you have to then regain that altitude later yeah yeah i mean the guys who recently did the traverse they um they were caught up at the top of mafadi and you know that plateau is it's about the highest most exposed thing around um, yeah, and we're considering heading for intercity summit cave. Um, I mean, they were also quite sleep deprived that that pushed through all the way from from the start from Sentinel. I think they were on a good thirty hours in at that point um, on no sleep. Uh, so they just wanted to take a couple of hours, uh, take a nap, etc., and had initially considered intercity summit cave, but it being about a two kilometer detour of the route. And we were speaking about things being cumulative and everything earlier. You really risk. You take the two-kilometer detour. You get a better shelter. It's more comfortable. But then you have to get back on the route. You kind of lose that momentum. So ultimately, what they did is they dropped. They stayed on the route. They just took the the very steep descent off the back of Mafadi into those Lesotho valleys, and they found a a kraal once they had lost enough altitude. Took their cat nap there before carrying on. So weather is going to be a factor. And, you know, even with the compulsory gear defined you might want to think about carrying additional stuff yourself right sure particularly again going to the point of uh 
it, it all depends on what your approach is. I mean, I think I think the cutoff is 100 hours. Yeah. So you can have a, a wide range of approaches from the guys gunning for your 40-hour or sub-40-hour times. You are going to have to. There's no way you can carry more than or something and hope to hope to cover that sort of ground in that time. Whereas if you're just aiming to make it within cutoff, you can. I'm not going to say comfortably, but you can you can hike the other, the entire thing and get reasonable amounts of sleep and still finish sub hundred hours. And that more dictates what you bring along with you. So if you're if you're planning on taking the full time, you're going to be carrying more food. You can afford to carry a bit of extra gear to give yourself a bit of. Just a bit of that margin to be able to stay up there during some some worse weather than expected and still stay in the race. Whereas all the uh, all the guys taking an aggressive approach, it's going to be very make make or break. Some terrible weather comes in, yeah, they're going to be forced to bail. I, I would say. So you, if if you've got some bad weather, you might actually see a situation where the guys who have taken the more conservative strategy are the ones who end up winning the race with with slower times, but just because they've got a strategy that is, uh, has allowed them to, to carry on in, in worse conditions. So this might really be one where the tortoise actually wins. And you, I mean, you see it often in, in the attempts that have happened over the years. The nature of taking a very aggressive approach to it is that you have to be, you have to accept that you're only going to make that sort of approach stick maybe one in every five attempts or something, because there's so many things that can go wrong. Um, and yeah, um, another good example is Andrew Porter before he set his first, well, I think he had gone about, he had done about four or five attempts before he set his first 60 hour time. Um, and that was always because he, he had this time in mind of 40 hours or, or sub 40 and he always set off hoping to hit that. And he would normally, you know, something would go wrong and he'd have to bail at organ pipes or at grays because he just knew he wouldn't be able to spend more than a night up there with the gear he had. And then eventually he just, uh, he decided to actually make sure he he had a time to his name given all the effort he had put into it. So he did he did do an attempt where he, I think he started quite fast. He did the first 90Ks to Mafadi as a nonstop sort of 20-hour push and then slept in Jusudi Summit Cave and slogged out the rest at more of a hiking pace to get the 60-hour time. And then many, many more attempts went into getting his 45-hour time, which shows how much effort needs to go into making an aggressive approach like that. Yeah, so you really are rolling the dice. For sure. Two pieces of, of advice that you would give to anybody who's going to take on this race. What would you say? It's it's almost like a, an expectation and a training point of view is to almost forget about running. If you... If you can do some running on the route, that's a bonus, um, and it it kind of maybe mixes things up and and reduces the slog. But in all your preparation and everything, you should be focusing on long days out, plenty of hiking, carrying the weight you're planning on carrying on the traverse. It's more of a it's like a mountain mission rather than a run. The the closest thing to it in terms of races that we have in South Africa and on the calendar are are adventure races actually with with long trekking legs. Where, as anyone knows who's done an adventure race, maybe it's a bit different for the top teams, but for the rest of us, you maybe do a bit of running while there's still a bit of competition and everything early on and you get carried away and fierce. But by the end of day one, those trekking legs are, you're, you're just slugging it out to keep moving forward. And that's that's what you need to have conditioned yourself for. It's, it's almost more of a conditioning preparation than all-out speed and fitness and that kind of thing in my mind. And the other one? Yeah, and then I'd say using the 
the training camps or on your own time if you if you know the burger little to actually spend a bit of time um recking familiarizing yourself with sections of the route maybe having some ideas of a couple of route options where based on how you're feeling at the time or based on whether you're able to take a low route versus a high route or a runnable versus a more direct route those kind of choices yeah it's something i've heard but never personally experienced i mean i've experienced berg mist and i understand it gets very thick but one of the arguments for staying in the valleys is because you're below the mist Mm, yeah, especially some of those deeper residual valleys. I mean, you you come off Mufadi and you lose 600 vertical meters dropping down into Lesotho and you stay at, I don't know, probably 2,700 meters altitude for a long time before you climb back up to the escarpment. There's some some big chunks of the route where you can get below the weather for a bit. And yeah, obviously the, the routes that stay along the high ridges are colder, more exposed to the wind, more difficult to navigate. Yeah, so in extreme weather, you'd want to be looking to to run in those valleys rather than running up on the ridges. Where where, where the option presents itself, I mean, there's there's a, a lot of the escarpment, as you'll know, is uh, your ridges are running perpendicular to the direction of travel. So you most of the traverse involves a whole series of climbs between 150 and 300 meters. You're just constantly doing these rolling. They're, they're steep climbs, but they're not massive. But you're doing I think something like 30 of them along the entire traverse. So it, it's you, you get quite used to crossing over ridges. Very few opportunities you have where you're you're following a valley, you know, north to south in the direction you want to go. I think to this testament to what you're saying about hiking is, I mean, when you guys first broke Gavin's record, your preparation for that consisted of, I think I saw the record that Andrew wrote down, you'd done two 5K runs and, and a whole bunch of hikes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you still managed it at a time of, what, 60 hours or something? 80, just under 82 hours. So three and a half days, essentially. But back then, I I very much come from a, a mountain hiking background. I, I wasn't a runner at all when we when we set the record. I, I got into uh, the running scene more later on in life. Um, but I'd initially tried an attempt with Brian Gardner, where we had tried to follow an adventure racing approach keep hiking take a power maybe sleep two hours at a time overnight but just keep keep moving and given the limited training i put in i just wasn't conditioned enough to be able to follow that sort of routine so when i went with andrew the idea was really just to there's going to be no running involved we're going to hike the whole thing and we're going to try and use the nights to recover properly so really make sure you're using full daylight hours from 5 a.m to 7 p.m we we did it in midsummer to cover as much ground as possible then and then put your feet up and sleep for seven hours and obviously the the record at the time was was four and a half days and if you if you work it out following that approach you you only need to cover i think it was 45 kilometers a day to to sneak under gavin and Lurie's record so that's what we set out to do we thought all we're going to do is try cover that 45 k's a day sleep at night and then then we should be able to break the record but while we were out there we we were able to we covered 45Ks on our first day because we started at 9am, that late start we were talking about earlier. And then our, we slept in Easter Cave. Then our first full day, we were able to cover more like, I think it was 54 kilometers or something to the other side of Mafadi. So we were just, we were able to cover more ground using 15 hours or 16 hours of daylight or whatever it is, purely at a, at a 
like a four kilometer an hour hiking pace, um, just a relentless slog, really. So my training was mainly some long days in the mountains. I could have certainly done a lot more. But that bodes well for people taking it, taking on the route because 100 hours is the cutoff. So as long as you're sensible mm-hmm. and you understand your own personal approach, whether that's, as you say, whether that's to race hard or, or be slightly more conservative, there's, there seems to be a lot of time to get there. You've still got to be prepared to cover 210 kilometers. Mm, yeah. With, was it 10,000 meters of elevation? Yeah, pretty close to that, which is quite staggering given that you're only doing climbs of two to 300 meters at a time. So there's, there's lots of those little bumps. Just thought of something, actually, one of the other main things, and it's something people who have had adventure racing experience and experience with long ultras will, will be quite familiar with, is, is one of the biggest things is being able to just reframe your goals and deal with setbacks. If you get hit with bad weather and you're no longer hitting your target times, that's where you see a lot of attrition where people throw in the towel because in, in their minds they're failing, you know, they're not hitting their times that they had carefully planned out in advance. Whereas if you if you approach it with a mentality of we're going to have those setbacks and you're going to have to, you know, readjust, keep changing your plan as you go based on however it's going that's far more suited to be able to finish something like this. Yeah, I think a good example of that tortoise and hare was that unofficial race that happened. I don't remember how many people started, but I know that Andrew Porter and um, Bruce Arnett were were two of those people, Mm. and they bailed off that one. And um, the only people who finished that were Laura Ballantyne and Fiona McIntosh. I mean, so one of the one of the features of that race, um, like you say, it was just an informal event. There used to be a a little online community of of people who were attempting the the Drakensberg Traverse record. I had raised the idea of why don't we all just kind of synchronize our attempts and and all set off at the same time. So we we agreed on a date. I think it was it was October or November two thousand and and there were probably it was something like five teams and maybe ten twelve people total who set off. The weekend we had chosen long in advance. Turns out the weather was atrocious. It was pouring the whole of the first day. So, but I mean, everybody was there, so they went anyway. And Andrew and Bruce got all the way to Mafadi, I think, Industry Summit Cave in that first 20 hours, way ahead of the rest of the pack. But again, same thing coming up. They they had packed for a, a fast time, like a, a sub 50 hour time or something like that. And given the weather, they, they just didn't have enough with them to be able to spend multiple nights up there. They were obviously quite broken from that day. And I think they slept in Intercity Summit Cave and called it the next morning when the when it was still torrential rain. I mean, at that point, I'm sure Laura and Fiona were still in the cathedral area or something. They, I mean, they had planned for a, a long mountain adventure, still light and fast uh, hiking approach. Um, and I think they started with... I think it was Trevor Johnston uh, or Mark Johnston. Yeah, I think it's Mark Johnston um, who had to bail around Cathedral or something. Um, I'm not sure whether it was uh, altitude or some other reason. Laura and Fiona just kept at it, and I think they were the only they were only team out of the five or six teams that started that managed to finish that one, um, and they did so in and I think it was six days and change or something. Yeah, still faster than ten days, but a long yeah, time out sure. there. Especially given the the kind of stuff you take with you for for that sort of thing, it's it's not like you have uh, all your comforts with you. <laughs> so gear is going to be an important thing. Your choice of gear is going to be important, and you've got to go with quality gear, right? I mean, you can't go in there with a sort of three thousand waterhead 
rain jacket and hope to get by. You want to minimize the number of items of gear you're taking, but the stuff you're taking needs to work. You need to have tested it in adverse conditions and everything to know that it does work. Because there's a lot of stuff out there where, you know, there's certain claims of light and waterproof and all of that. And, and once you take it out in, in its first proper bad weather, it, it ends up leaking like a sieve. Um, and you don't want to end up being in the middle of the race with something like that. So it's useful to have well-tested gear and stuff you can trust. Yeah, because you're quite you're quite committed out there once you have made your gear selection. It's relentless, as you say. That sense of scale that you that just isn't there because there's because there's only grass and rocks. Mm. You're looking across a valley that is nine, ten k's long. You have no idea of how far it is, and you start walking, and you think, "Well, I should be across this valley in about an hour or two, and you're still going four hours later, <laughs> and you're still. Yeah. I'm moving down that same valley. Something I got a bit of flack for when I when I mentioned it the first time we tried the traverse. I mean, when when you're doing this sort of thing, yes, the Drakensberg is a spectacular place, and the views of the escarpment are amazing. But the the route it's the GPS tracks follows is is optimized for for distance and time and trying to take the most efficient route. So you end up in in these Lesotho valleys and the escarpment valleys a lot. It can it can get quite repetitive. So you you go through one of these long valleys you were talking about. You cross over the ridge on the other side, and the next view you get is another long green valley. Um, yes. <laughs> so so it helps to that's I suppose where the reikis help and everything. It helps to know what to expect and and have your head wrapped around what um, what's going to keep you going forward in that in that sort of scenario. It's exciting though. Super exciting! I'm, I'm really, I'm really chuffed that they're organising a, a race on the route. It's there's been sort of uh, over the years, the, it's kind of ebbed and flowed in terms of the interest. Obviously, when Ryan and Rayner broke um, set the FKT, there was a lot of interest and a lot of groups went. Something like this will get uh, get people talking again, get people keen. I've seen a lot of interest on the Facebook groups and that kind of thing already. So I'm very excited to see who who commits and, and rocks up on the starting line. Yeah. At that time of the year, the chance of snow is pretty slim, right? It's Yeah, pretty unlikely. I guess one of the things with uh, with an event, one of the disadvantages of an event is that they they have to pin a date down. You can't, what, what most of the guys who do the FKT attempts, what they'll do is they'll they'll take leave for a week or something or have a, have a, a, a week period, a two week period or something where they're willing to take leave at last notice. And keep an eye on the weather forecast and, and go for a, a good three-day weather window or something like that. Whereas with a race, you kind of you're committed to those dates and what come rain or shine, and I presume it's gonna happen. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Mindful Runner, check us out at mindfulrunner.co.za on Instagram. You can find us at Mindful Runner. In the meantime, enjoy your running, happy trails, and don't forget to subscribe.